Look at me, sure. Look at me, sure. I'm the captain now. Hi there, and welcome to Baseball by Design. Once again, this is not Paul Caputo, but rather Dan Simon. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week and finish up our Turn the Table takeover podcast of Baseball by Design. So right now, I'm very pleased to be joined by my very special guest, Paul Caputo. Welcome back. At one point in my life, I, I was looking for a collecting hobby. And I was in a store in Los Angeles, one of these shops where you can get all kinds of quirky little things. And there was a mechanical wind-up bird. And I liked it. It spoke to me, not literally, but figuratively. <laughs> and I purchased it. And then I remember being in some other store and seeing a wind-up bird, and I got one of those. And I decided, hey, I'm going to start collecting wind-up birds. So I was about three to four birds into this. And I remember at one point saying to my girlfriend, it's not much of a hobby here. <laughs> and uh, and that was the end of my wind-up bird um, collecting <laughs> hobby ship. But you are obviously are a, are, are a, uh, a known collector of um either Sunday helmets or helmet Sundays. I think there are Sunday helmets. Can I, can I revisit this question here, Dan? Um, because when we posed that question, when, when you posed that question to me, I posted a Twitter poll asking whether I should change the name of the Helmet Sunday Hall of Fame to the Sunday Helmet Hall of Fame. And uh, you're never going to believe it. But so far, what is this, like three hours into this interview right now, we are... <laughs> At 62.5%, yes, 62.5 to 37.5, yes, it should be the Sunday Helmet Hall of Fame. I don't mean to be a disruptor. Sorry <laughs> if I disrupted you, but I was just, it's the importance of syntax. So back to the ice cream helmets. Yeah. If you, if that were not, and it could be not argued, but you also, you have a lot of dad hats. I don't know if that constitutes a collection, but yeah. That's if a good question because I have a lot of t-shirts too. And I don't know if I collect t-shirts or if I just have a lot of t-shirts or <laughs> as John Hodgman famously says, the, the line between a hoarder and a collector is a display case. And so, right. you know, it's maybe I just need to display my t-shirts and then it's a collection. Most of your helmets, I know you, you receive some from, from listeners of yours and um, Twitter followers of yours and other people in the the sports branding and the the Sunday helmet um, community, um, but a lot of them, perhaps most, have come from your actual consumption of a helmet Sunday at minor league and I'm sure major league baseball games. Mm -hmm. um, do you ever? Do you have any a memorable ice cream helmet Sunday experience or mm. experiences? Okay, so, the, so I have a couple for sort of different reasons. The Akron Rubber Ducks, I just remember, you know, and they were just selling Cleveland helmets. They didn't even sell their own their own helmet, except unless you got like the Screamer, which is what they call their head-sized, their full-sized helmet that has like, like two bananas and 21 scoops of ice cream and like a million different things that you can't possibly eat, except with like a team of seven people. Um, but they served this like really delicious ice cream and it's, it's some of the best ice cream that I've had at a baseball game. Salt Lake bees also 
massive serving of, you know, scooped ice cream that is just, you know, really, it was, you know, delicious, really good ice cream. The, I went to a Texas Rangers game in their old stadium that is, is now gone, I guess. And it's it was... Actually- I'm not mistaken. It's not gone. It's oh, still, still there. there and they're using it for things, including football. Okay. I think I could be wrong about that. Ask, we'll ask Anna Di Tommaso about that. That's a good question for Anna Di Tommaso. But the, the funny thing was, so I was at the, I was at the old Ranger stadium and it was 10 o'clock at night. And I was, you know, I was sort of unfamiliar with this kind of heat in the world that it could exist this way, that it could be like 95 degrees at 10 o'clock at night somewhere. And so we were, you know, we were partway into this game. It was pretty late in the game. And I went and I got myself an ice cream helmet because it was, you know, it was an American league game. It was going slow. It was, it was 10 o'clock at night and it was still like the sixth or seventh inning. And, uh, and I went and I got, I got myself a helmet and I'm walking back to my seat and the helmet is just like dripping in my hands. Like it just in the short walk back to my seat that it was just melting just very quickly. And I had to sit there and just like sort of work it while I was, you know, in the you know on the concourse there because it wasn't going to actually make it back to my seat and so by the time i actually got back to my seat with it it was still the seventh inning and it was basically soup well i was just going to say so in an ice cream helmet you can have scooped ice cream i suppose Mm -hmm. Um, you can have soft serve swirled ice cream and you can have ice cream soup which you have there in in texas And I'm not trying to yuck anyone's yum or gatekeep people's confections at baseball games, but I'm not a huge fan of, of Dippin' Dots. It's not necessarily, it's not really my thing. But Well, if you were a food service manager at a ballpark, oh, yeah. what, what would be your, what would be the Paul Caputo helmet Sunday? One that you haven't had before, but if you can craft one, what would yeah. be the Paul Caputo helmet Sunday? All right. I have, I have strong feelings about this actually. So I, I, I love frozen custard, frozen custard over soft serve ice cream, even over hard scooped ice cream, uh, because, because, fro- you know, the, the soft serve, you know, holds the toppings better. Uh, and then frozen custard is just objectively better than, than soft serve ice cream. But here's the secret. And, and this is something my children and I discovered at the Rockies self-serve frozen yogurt stand out on the left field concourse. The secret in my mind is you, at the self-serve bar, you put the toppings in first, you do a layer of ice cream, some more toppings, a little more ice cream, and then the final toppings. So you layer the toppings and the ice cream in there, starting with the toppings. And that way you've got toppings all the way down. Wow. Starting with the toppings, how anti-establishment. Right. Are you? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's sort of a, bo- a bohemian approach to ice cream helmets for sure. And then so, and then, yeah, and that can be whatever, right? I happen to like the crushed Oreos. I love chocolate jimmies and chocolate sauce to me. Like if I'm having ice cream, I just want it to be as chocolatey as possible. That's my thing when it comes to ice cream. So, but you know, it's more, it's more the technique of whatever you're going to put on your, on your ice cream, start with the toppings. Now, as a collector of these helmets, yeah, this is something I've always wondered about as I've, as I have, uh, um, been sitting with you on our zoom calls and seeing the helmets in in the background i see all these helmets lined up yeah and i remember going to i used to i mentioned i was born in the bronx grew up in queens then i lived in suburban new jersey and when i was of drinking age i remember going into new york city and i had friends of mine who loved going to a famous place in new york city called mcsorley's old ale house have you ever heard of mcsorley's Mm -mm. 
Okay, well, it's a famous place in New York City. It's a bar um, where they serve McSorley's Ale, and that's what you order there. If they have other beers, maybe now they do, but back then you just got McSorley's Ale. But I remember above the bar, there was like this, um, I don't know if it was wire or whatever. There was something on which they had wishbones. And there were a whole bunch of wishbones and they were caked with dust. Like there was there was half an inch of dust on top of these wishbones, which meant they had been up there a long, long time. And I look at those ice cream helmets on your shelves. And I wonder, you've got over 400 of them. Mm-hmm. And it's not like a nice, it's not like dusting a shelf or something like that, right. because you've got all these helmets stacked on top of each other. Yeah. Do you dust those? How do you keep them clean? What What is, do you have a crew that comes in and, and does that for you? I don't have a crew. No, we don't have, we, we aren't staffed up yet. It's, it's all docents and volunteers at the Sunday Helmet <laughs> Hall of Fame, Helmet Sunday Hall of Fame. Uh, a live update, by the way, we're at, uh, it's now down to 59.1%. Uh, yes, but still, uh, you know. Gee, the silent, maybe yeah, that's the, the silent majority kind of weighing in now that they've heard yeah. the vocal minority, maybe. They're watching Jake Tapper on CNN with the map of the United States point out, you know, who, who prefers which. But when they get dusted is when they get rearranged, which is more often than you would think, because when I add a new one to the uh, to the stack, you know, it often causes me to have to rearrange like that sort of subsection. So, you know, because I'll often, you know, I'll add one, you know, if I add a, a new Toledo Mudhens helmet and I already have two Toledo Mudhens helmets, I try to keep them together on the collection. And so I often have to rearrange the whole sort of AAA section when I do that. So more often than not, that is happening when I am rearranging my helmets. That's how we, that's how I dust them. Well, this is all fascinating, at least to me. And we can dive even deeper into Sunday helmets. Um, for instance, I could ask you what type of, what do you use to dust them? Are we talking Swiffers? Are we talking feather dusters? But we can go, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. Instead, I think this is a good time to bring in a very special guest into our podcast. Somebody who all of your the baseball by design listeners know very well. Um, one of my favorite guests that you have, I love every time she's on. We would like, I would like to bring in Ranger Amy by any chance. Um, is that possible? You're going to be shocked to learn this, but I'm actually recording live. I'm not in the Sunday Helmet Hall of Fame in Fort Collins, Colorado, in my basement. I am in the kitchen of Baseball by Design wildlife consultant, Ranger Amy Burnett. Hi, Dan. Welcome to my 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 um, Turn the Tables Takeover podcast of Baseball by Design. Um, as I just said, I, I love your... Um, Love every time you've you've come in. You you and Paul have a great repartee. Um, your knowledge of animals seems to be boundless. Uh, let let's learn. You've been on many times. The listeners know you, but as they did not necessarily know all the things they now know about Paul, we know very little about you. So let's uh, let's at least get into that a little bit. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Oh my gosh, I didn't think you were going to be asking me all this. Yeah. I thought this was about Paul. Well, <laughs> first, you... it's really great to to meet you, even though virtually. I hope to get to catch a, a baseball game with you sometime with Paul and your and your wife. That would be super I, fun. 
I enjoy that very much. I would like that. Um, so I am originally from Portsmouth, New Hampshire. It's right on the seacoast. So Paul and I both grew up on the shore. So we have that in common. So being in in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. um, that sort of makes constitutes, as far as I understand, the greater Red Sox nation area. Did you what did you grow? Were you a baseball fan growing up? So um, I grew up a Red Sox fan, but only because mostly because my dad would let us stay up late if we watched the baseball game with him. So I like to stay up late, kind of a night owl. So I stayed up with my dad and we'd watch the baseball games together. So that's kind of how I grew a love of baseball. And so I associate baseball with just happy things. It's sort of like my, it's my happy place, really. Um, I'm not really as attuned to the statistics and parts of the game as a lot of baseball fans, but I really, really enjoy the games. And that's where I got my love. Um, But Paul will tell you that (laughs) I really... Um, one of the first times that Paul and I had a conversation about baseball, I think I called it runs points. <laughs> <laughs> what you described, what you love so much about it being like your happy place. That's what Paul was saying earlier. I was asking him where his love for baseball came from and what it what it was for him. And frankly, for so many people is it's time spent with family. It's time spent with friends. Now, yes. anytime you go to a game, I shouldn't say anytime you can go to a game by yourself, but most of the time it's with other people and it's those, it, it's family, friends, and, and the overall community. And so it's not so much, you know, I, I love delving into, although for some people it is delving into batting averages and how many home runs this guy hit and, and all of that. It's just those experiences you, you share and they're normally pleasant ones. And one of the reasons for that is baseball has all these, it's not, these other sports are great, but in basketball, it's almost constant action. Hockey, it's almost constant action. Even though in football, um, it's stop and go, stop and go. There's more action. Whereas in baseball, there's a lot of time in between where you can talk to each other, where you can point things out, where you can, it doesn't even have to be about the game. It's just talking to people. It's a great, it's a great setting, whether you're at home on the couch, watching it with, with your dad, like you, you mentioned, or whether you're at the game watching it with Paul. Um, it, it's a time to just be with somebody and enjoy spending that time at a really, you know, slow, pleasurable pace. So, yeah. I think that's a really good way to put it. I mean, I just love the fact that you can, it's not, you know, for the most part, it's not like, you know, can't talk. We have to, you know, we have to watch this. There's a lot of, you know, just sitting there and taking it in and, and a lot of conversations that you might not have had, I love the baseball game for that. You know, it's just, you can get a little further into conversations. You're having that relaxing time. Uh, Almost like, you know, kind of, I think that's probably why I like beer too, because (laughs) not only do I enjoy the taste of beer, but you can just sort of linger over a beer and um, you get together for the excuse of having a beer, but really you just want to spend time with people. And, And that for me is the same about a baseball game. Well, what you just described, you're not, you're, when you when you go to a ball game, you're not having a beer; you're sharing a beer. Oh, I like that idea. Yes, I'm glad you you enjoy baseball. And what I enjoy is the way you take what you do for a living and you intertwine that with with baseball. So let's let's hear a little bit about. Um, we we know you as Ranger Amy. We know you're a Ranger. What does what does being what do you do on 
what's a day like for you? What, what, what do you do for your job? What is being a ranger? And, and um, how did you, how did you get into that? That's not, you know, people who become accountants, they become sales people, they become athletes, whatever. I personally don't know a lot of people who became rangers. So this is very interesting to me. And I have to admit, I don't know a lot about it. So inform us. Sure. Well, it's, I didn't know what I wanted to be for a while. I actually got my degree in environmental studies before I decided to be a ranger. And someone just said, Hey, have you ever thought about being a ranger? And I said, no, you know, tell me more. And turns out I've been to national parks and seen park rangers, of course, before give talks. And so I thought, Hey, you know, that might be a great opportunity for me. I basically just wanted to talk to people about animals and I didn't know there was a job you could do. And that's basically how I got into being a ranger. And I just loved it. Um, my first job was on the Blue Ridge Parkway in North Carolina. And so I would uh, walk around the campground, invite people to the campfire program with a snake wrapped around my hat. And uh, my, you know, my, my Smokey the Bear hat. And every once in a while, I'd forget it was up there and the snake would sort of poke its head out because it was pretty mellow and uh, it scared people. <laughs> but um, I just always loved just bringing that human, you know, I don't like to anthropomorphize animals to the point where people stop seeing them as animals, but I do like to point out the similarities. And I think we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, animals are very relatable. And when you relate animals to people, vice versa, and then people understand them and, and enjoy them, even if even if it's a venomous or poisonous animal. And you know, if you can help them relate, then somehow they're less scary. So that's kind of my favorite thing to do. I kind of, I kind of went off the rails on your question. Well, you actually you answered it perfectly. You didn't go off the rails. That's what that's what I was hoping for. Explaining to us what you do, <laughs> why you do it, and how you got to do it. So thank you for for that. And and that's actually a perfect segue into why you are here. When you're talking about relating animals to people and vice versa, and, and you talk about how that particular animal, how how its particular traits, qualities, characteristics um, lend themselves well to certain aspects of the game of baseball: running, jumping teamwork, et cetera. So what we're going to do, being that this is the Turn the Tables episode of the Baseball by Design podcast, we're going to turn that around. Our, our animal today is Paul Caputo. So, <laughs> so I'm laughing because Paul has no idea. And we, you and I have talked a little bit over email and he has no idea that we have this, we were conspiring. So he just like rolled his eyes and laughed and I'm laughing too. So tell us... Um, what traits about Paul, and, and I use the word traits, and I, if you come up with a better word, I appreciate that. And I've also said qualities and characteristics. What, what, what about Paul reminds you of or is consistent with particular animals? For example, as we're doing here with Paul, and Paul likes to do in his podcast, we're, we're digging deep. Okay, and so I think about, well, that makes me immediately think of groundhogs or moles or something else. So along those lines, without giving you, I could give you other examples, and maybe I will, depending on what your answer or answers end up being. Tell us about Paul through animals or animals through Paul. All right, that's a great start. Um, so definitely Paul is a type of fossorial animal. A fossorial animal is one that likes to dig and to dig deep. 
So Paul would definitely be a type of fossorial animal, such as the ones you just mentioned, like a mole rat or a groundhog. But um, I actually am going to call say that Paul is more like a badger. Um, <laughs> and even though you might think of badgers as having a bad temper, uh, the qualities that are like Paul uh, badgers have are, is that they're persistent. They basically um, get they can go after what they want and they usually get it. Uh, so they're persistent. They don't give up easily. Uh, they and they do dig really deep. So that's uh, they live most. Uh, they live mostly underground. Come up when they're when they're hungry and need some food. Um, so Paul kind of lives in the basement when he's doing podcastings, and he comes up for ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Paul is like a badger in that way. Paul the badger. Okay. Do continue, um, then, please. <laughs> So um, Paul is a little bit like an orangutan <laughs> because he's kind of hairy and orange. <laughs> he's got a beard and he's kind of furry and orange. Um, but the characteristics of an orangutan, um, they're pretty mellow when it comes to their demeanor. So Paul doesn't get, he's not upset very easily, which makes him um, kind of fun to hang around. And he's deliberate. So the, uh, like an orangutan, they are also ingenious and they are persistent. So um, I would say that Paul is, is kind of like an orangutan in that way. Well, let me ask you then, as far as other qualities of or characteristics of orangutans that um, I've noticed, you know, there's this movie with uh, Clint Eastwood, actually it was this, at least two or maybe more movies, but Every Which Way But Loose, where he he his co-star in the movie is an orangutan. And so oh. they are... They're, and you can get them to do, and and I remember the orangutan in that movie with Clint Eastwood, every which way but loose, was named Clyde. And Clyde, you watch this movie, and and he's Clint Eastwood tells him to do something, and he does it, not like not ordering him, but like he gets Clyde punches people, I think. Um, so they're highly trainable animals. Is, is Paul highly trainable? <laughs> you know, um, it's a good question. Uh, that's. I would say he's pretty trainable. <laughs> <laughs> so are there animals who collect considerable quantities of, of similar objects like his ice cream helmets and dad hats? An animal a, a, an animal especially known for its gathering? Is there some, some parallel there between Paul and a particular animal? There is. I'm having so much fun at this. I don't know if you know, but I'm just like watching Paul's expressions as he's listening to the answers. So Paul's a little bit like a pack rat because he does like to gather things, especially shiny things. Now, these helmet Sundays are not necessarily shiny, but to Paul, they're pretty shiny because they're so Paul's like, oh, I don't have this one. I need to collect that one. Um, and so, of course, he's slowly collected more than what, two, uh, 400 helmets Sundays now? Yeah, more than 400. So yeah, a little bit like a pack rat. He sees something. He's like, oh, I want I want to have that in my collection. And so he's got quite a pack rat midden, as they would say, of helmet Sundays. Is I've I'm sure we've all heard of pack rats, usually referring to people. Is yes. a pack rat actually a type of rat? Or it is, or... yes. Okay. It's a white-footed wood rat. And it lives in the and particularly in the southwest deserts. So I actually have some in my backyard. I've trapped a few. Um over the years, I, I help out friends who, who need them trapped and, uh, and remove them and, and let them go. 
Well, I hope Paul the pack rat came willingly and was did was not trapped. I did not trap and relocate <laughs> Paul. So, uh, you know, if he started collecting things and putting them in a in a mound at my house, then I might have something to say about it. But uh, so far, he has not shown that uh, a tendency to collect things other than the helmet Sundays and maybe a few plastic cups from different baseball games that we've been to over the years. Okay. Now we prior to this podcast, um, I got a text from Paul informing me that you guys were going out for a run and um, letting me know that you would be back by this time, uh, you know, our our prearranged scheduled time. So uh, we know Paul's a runner. I believe this has come up in, in the podcast before, so I don't think this is news to, to you Baseball by Design podcast listeners. Paul's a runner, he covers great distances. Um, are there particular animals known for doing the same? So, yes. In So if you're looking at a long, a long distance runner, so Paul's not really a sprinter. I would say he's more of an endurance runner. As far as distance, I would liken him probably to a zebra. In If we were over in Africa, or if you were in the Southwest Desert area, or in Arizona, rather, I would say he's kind of like a pronghorn because they can, they're known to be able to travel long distances. They're great runners. They get up to speeds about 35 miles an hour, um, probably faster than, okay, a lot faster than Paul can run, uh, a lot faster than even who, the fastest runner in the world could run. Um, but I think that he's got that indis, that dur- endurance and distance running. He's got that talent that way. So maybe like a American pronghorn, or uh, if we were over in Africa, I would liken him to probably to a zebra. Okay, I I didn't know that. I, I, obviously, we all know of zebras because they're one of the most unique animals with regard to their their stripes. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't know, you know, they're like, I, I guess they're part of the equine family, correct? Yes. Okay, so they, uh, you know, so like a horse, we know horses can run and travel great distances. So I guess it makes sense that zebras do, but I never really thought of them in that way i just think of them as one of the coolest looking animals i didn't know they're known for traveling great distances so just like when we do um when i do research into a particular theme for an identity i'm doing where i learned something i didn't know thank you for informing us and me in particular about zebras and their ability to travel distances okay well that's the end of my list of leading questions, meaning here's things I've thought of, but I don't know animals like you do. Was there anything else you thought of that that might pertain to Paul? Well, first I started with characteristics of Paul and then I went to animals from there. So I kind of went backwards. I thought, you know, what are the characteristics that I think of with Paul? And then I thought of the animals that sort of matched up. So I have a couple other ones I'd love to share and Please embarrass do. Paul with. Maybe it's something he'll be happy to hear about. Okay, I think so. Um, now that <laughs> I've called the pack rat and orangutan, but actually orangutans are are one of the smartest monkeys. So um, they share most of our DNA. Actually, they're more related to us than the chimps are. But back to Paul. So Paul really likes road trips, and he likes to travel long distances, especially to get what he wants, um, which in this case, of course, is baseball and helmet Sundays. So, but if we call that food in general, an animal that travels long distances to find food would be um, the sea turtle. 
the cool thing about one of the cool things about sea turtles is that not only do they roam long distances, but they return to the same beach that they were um, that they were born at uh, year after year. So one of the things that Paul likes to do is return to the Jersey Shore every year, and that's one of and he loves doing that to to be with his family. So he's kind of like a sea turtle and roams all these far distances. He's the one in the family that roamed all the way to Colorado. But then he always goes back to the shore in the summertime, the beach that he loves. Ocean City, New Jersey. Ocean City, New Jersey. Um, and then, so Paul likes to talk a lot. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> no. Are we talking about the same Paul Caputo? <laughs> he likes to talk a lot, and he's pretty gregarious. So he likes to hang out with a few close friends and chat. So um, the one animal that I found that sounds a little bit like Paul would keep it's actually called the jungle babbler. <laughs> Makes it be a new nickname for Paul. The jungle babbler. <laughs> the, jungle, the jungle babbler. And it is a bird that lives in India. And this particular bird likes to hang out with groups of like six to ten. So not like a huge flock of birds, just like six to ten different birds and he'll just hang out. Um they'll just hang out together. And what I thought of when I looked at this bird, the jungle babbler, is it's perfect because when this Paul loves to hang out with his baseball palooza guys, and there's usually like six to 10 guys in this, um, in a small group of, um, of his friends. And, uh, and so he's a little bit like a jungle babbler. Well, I, I have experienced that both on the podcast and in person. I was, I went to a game here in Louisville with, uh, with the baseball palooza crew um, and the whole crew likes, well, I shouldn't say everyone because some of them were quieter than others, but there, there was no end to the banter from the first pitch to the last. Um, and speaking of Louisville, uh, Paul and I talked earlier about what we were wearing. Ranger Amy is wearing a Louisville Slugger t-shirt. Louisville Slugger is where Louisville Sluggers are made. And here in Louisville is the Louisville Slugger Museum and Factory where they don't make all of their wood bats, but they do make their major league professional bats. And in front of the Louisville Slugger Museum and Factory is the world's largest baseball bat. I have to apologize to Louisville Slugger. I couldn't tell you how many stories high it is, but it's higher than the building. And um, yeah, it's really cool. It's a local landmark. So um, one of the things Louisville's famous for. Yes. Ranger Amy, it was great meeting you. Nice I heard you, but now I get to meet you at least virtually via Zoom. So mm -hmm. thank you so much for your um, your insight with regard to Paul and how he... Uh, how he, his part in our, in the animal kingdom. So thank you so much for, for being a guest on Dan's, Dan Simon's uh, Turn the Table Takeover of the Baseball by Design podcast. I had a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Dan. Guys, welcome back to Baseball by Design, where I, Dan Simon, am have turned the tables and are interviewing Paul. And right now we're going to go to a lightning round. Now, this is a lightning round by title, not necessarily in actuality. Paul, if you wish to elaborate on any of these things, you certainly can. But um, these are these are some baseball and some non-baseball questions. So I'm ready. We've already established that your favorite player was 
Manny Trio, and you also liked Mike Schmidt, is do you have a favorite under the radar player? It doesn't necessarily have to be a Philly, somebody who's not somebody that immediately comes to mind. And I'll actually say Manny Trio, you're the first person I know who who that was his favorite player. Very good player, an all-star, um, an important part of the Phillies team. He he certainly wasn't a bench rider or somebody who just had a, a cup of coffee. But is there a particular player or players that perhaps even on another team that wouldn't be, you know, the Mickey Mantles, the Aaron Judges, the Mike Trouts um, that you might have really liked as, as a fan? Well, I liked... Uh, I, I liked shake and bake McBride on those Phillies teams. The, the, the expression, you know, I'm sure you've heard it applied to other players where they said that two thirds of the earth is covered by water. And the other third was covered by bake McBride. Uh, yep. Loved, loved that. Loved Von Hayes. I loved uh, his uh, base stealing acumen. He was always fun to watch on another team. I've always been a huge fan of Sean Doolittle. Uh, just in terms of sort of what he does in the community and and for his his teams. Uh, Sean Doolittle is a guy I've always enjoyed following in that regard. Okay, this next question requires, a, I, I'll, I, I'm going to try to make this quick, a little um, a lead up to this question. Okay. Um, here in Louisville, in addition to be, being the site of uh, the Louisville Slugger Museum and Factory, and also the birthplace of Muhammad Ali, um, it's also known for a very famous horse race, the Kentucky Derby. And I attended a Kentucky Derby, my first Kentucky Derby, where we were going with people who got us VIP access uh, during the Kentucky Derby, where we got fed, we ate and drank like kings and queens. And mm -hmm. um, by the end of you know, going to the Derby, it's not just one race, it's a full racing day. So by the end of the day, we were stuffed and we we had been, when it comes to our drinks, we were overserved, um, and we 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 could not eat another bite or drink another drop. However, we had arranged to meet with friends at who were also at the Kentucky Derby, but not with us at that Kentucky Derby, but but not with us in, in this VIP area. Um and we we agreed to meet with them for dinner afterwards. So when we got to that restaurant, we were there with with these friends who were there who was there who were there with um, their entire family: father, mother, sister, brother, and and other families. A big group of people, and they had already been there for a while. They already had their their dinners. There were multiple bottles of wine on on the table. We ordered a side salad and nothing to drink. We drank water. But when we were done eating and the bills came, their family just decided to divide mm. up the, the tab. Yeah. And, and it was not equitable based mm -hmm. on what we ate. We ended up spending hundreds of dollars for, for side salads. Yeah. And we were having a discussion shortly thereafter. This is a discussion people in Louisville do to the horse racing we're, we're famous for yeah. we have it's like what if we had a racehorse what would we name it and my the people who we, we were there at the Kentucky Derby with who we then met these other friends laughed like they knew right away and they said my racehorse should be called by the way it was the Miller family and mm. he said my my racehorse should be called Mr. Miller's tab 
so that if I ever have a racehorse, that's the name of my first racehorse. So with yeah. that story being told, if you had a racehorse, what would you name it? So probably that racehorse would be some somewhat in my image. And uh, to to Ranger Randy's point, maybe I'm not the best sprinter in the world, which is you know what these uh, what these horse races are. So I think in many ways, my horse would probably be the opposite of Seabiscuit. And so I think the opposite of Seabiscuit might have to be Land Cookie. And so <laughs> I, I think my horse would be Land Cookie. The other the other thought I have about this is obviously uh, back in 2004, uh, the famous Philadelphia. I mean, this was how starved we were for success in Philadelphia as a, as a city. The whole city rallied around Smarty Jones. Uh, the the racehorse that got two thirds of the way to the the triple crown, um, and so uh, I was thinking, you know, maybe some sort of play on on Smarty Jones, Dummy Jones, something like that. I don't know. I, I that one I'm still workshopping. So I think I think Land Cookie would have to be the one. Land Cookie it is Smarty Jones is one of my favorite names ever for a racehorse, and yeah. I was fortunate. I think I've been to at least three, maybe four Kentucky Derbies. Oh. I was there when Smarty Jones won won his or its Kentucky Derby. So Very I got cool. to play that with in person. The third race, by the way, the failed attempt at the Triple Crown uh, happened during my sister's wedding. And everyone suddenly like disappeared to the hotel bar to <laughs> watch this uh, two minutes of racing here and then uh, slunk back into the wedding all disappointed when it didn't pan out. Yeah, we love ourselves a Triple Crown. It's a, it's a great accomplishment. So. Yeah. In any sport, you know, we have baseball's triple crown as well. Love when that happens. Yep. Yep. Uh, hey, do you have a favorite baseball book? I started reading a lot about the the Negro Leagues after visiting the Negro Leagues Museum. And obviously, you know, the Negro Leagues Museum had a a, a, a strong campaign for Buck O'Neill to make it to the Hall of Fame, which ultimately paid off, but not until after Buck O'Neill passed away. And there is a uh, a book by Joe Posnanski. I hope I'm saying his name right. Joe Posnanski right. from Kansas City called The Soul of Baseball about traveling the country with Bob Kendrick, who is the president of, of the museum and with Buck O'Neill, who was in his you know 90s at this point. And uh, just a super touching, super interesting book um, that I would recommend to everybody. I also you know, like everyone else who has read it, I love Moneyball too. So it's hard, hard to read that book and not love it. Okay. Uh, what's the worst thing you have ever eaten? <laughs> the, the worst thing I ever ate, I didn't even realize it was the worst thing I was eating until after I was done because it wreaked havoc on my system. I don't have uh, food allergies except for, it turns out, quinoa. I ate quinoa and it basically left me doubled over in pain for about six hours. And I have not eaten quinoa since then. Well, actually, I actually did eat it one more time because I didn't realize it was the quinoa that did it to me. So on two separate occasions, I have eaten quinoa and it it basically just ended my night and left me sort of doubled over in pain. It's my only food allergy, it turns out. Okay, I, I want to issue this, uh, I don't know if this is a caveat, but to the National Quinoa Board, mm. we are, th this I don't think Paul meant that as an indictment on quinoa just for him. Um, I've had quinoa and did not suffer any allergies. <laughs> so people, if you haven't had quinoa before, um, I think it's probably fairly safe to try. So um, it's, yeah. And it's fairly innocuous in sort of how it tastes. It's just sort of like a regular grain. It might even be like a superfood. It's probably supposed to be pretty good for you. 
and I researched this a little afterwards, uh, I think it was like some reaction I had to the proteins in it. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. That's the first quinoa um, allergy, allergic reaction I've ever heard. So you're, yeah. Paul, you're a unique individual for I, well. many ways, including <laughs> your tolerance of quinoa. Okay. Speaking of eating, what's the best thing you have ever eaten at a minor league ballpark, non-ice cream related? This one's easy. The green chili cheeseburger at the Albuquerque Isotopes game. It's a, Okay. Shout out to um, Albuquerque and the Isotopes. Yeah. Everybody go have one. Paul recommends yeah. it highly. I do. Well, both of us grew up in Wayne. You in Wayne, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Me in Wayne, New Jersey. Coincidentally, another thing we've got in common. How about that? Uh, there are eight cities in the United States named Wayne. There are 16 Wayne counties, plus a host of Waynesboros, Waynesburgs, Waynesvilles, not to mention a Wayne town, a Wayne wood, a Wayne city, and of course, Fort Wayne, home of the Fort Wayne pin caps, the hat you're wearing today, and also featured in episode 48 of the Baseball by Design podcast. Um, so that's a lot of Waynes, I, yeah. I, I think it's safe to say. So what is something unique to or special about your Wayne, Wayne, Pennsylvania? First of all, all of these Waynes, I presume, are named after the same General Anthony Wayne, who uh, is the, the namesake for the Mad Ants, the, the Fort Wayne Mad Ants in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, and not a good person, not a person who should be the namesake of a bunch of towns. And so uh, that's uh, one of the things that I, you know, that has been interesting for me as I've learned about this country, something I learned about my own Wayne, Pennsylvania, that I didn't know growing up there. Wayne, Pennsylvania is 14 miles from the city of Philadelphia. It's on the main line. It was originally called Luella, uh, which is which is something I learned relatively recently because that's the name of the train station there. And so like many places uh, in the United States, it exists because of a train line. The Philadelphia main line is sort of like this long, straight line of, I guess, wealthy suburbs that was on the, the main line, the main train line that goes into Philadelphia. And so uh, Wayne, Pennsylvania, I worked, my first job was at the Anthony Wayne Movie Theater, which after many, 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 many years, finally just shut down. But I remember I spent a summer there working, and the two movies that were playing were Turner and Hooch with uh, Tom Hanks and Arachnophobia with uh, John Goodman. And so I there's like a half hour of each of those movies that I know practically by heart because that was my half hour lunch break. And I would go into one of those two movies for an entire summer and watch the same half hour of those movies. I don't know how either of them begins or ends, but I know the same half, half hour of each of those movies. <laughs> so I don't know if that counts as a unique fact, but that's certainly my personal connection to, to my own Wayne. Well, unique or otherwise personal connection works for me. Um, with my Wayne, Wayne, New Jersey, also named after, Anthony Wayne. We had an Anthony Wayne junior high school. And our claim to fame is I moved to Wayne, New Jersey in 1969. They were the Wayne, New Jersey was the 1970 Little League World Champions. World wow. Champions. Wayne, New Jersey. Little Wayne. Wow. New now, speaking of Little League, what tell us a memorable Little League moment for yourself. You as a <laughs> Little League player. So I used to, when I was too young to play Little League, I watched my older brother. He's two and a half years older than me. And and I would just, I was just champing at the bit to get out there, right? Like I just absolutely wanted to play. And I was born in August. The cutoff for playing was September. 
And so my parents actually went to this little league and lied to them about my age. They said I was born September 6th, not August 6th, because they wanted me to be able to, to play a year sooner than I otherwise would have been eligible. And what happened was I kept advancing, you know, you know, you, you would either advance or you'd be held back a year. Uh, I kept advancing to the next level, but I was always the smallest kid on the team. And I was, I was never much of a standout player in part. I, you know, I feel because maybe I was younger until finally I had aged out and my parents went back to them and they were like, you know what? Paul was actually born August 6th, not September 6th. And so he's technically, you know, eligible for one more year. And this little league was so desperate for players. They were like, Oh, okay, great. Uh, well, let's have Paul come back and play another year. And then I was like the same size as all the other kids on the team. And I actually made the all-star team that year. And we went to extra innings against the, the evil. We were the Wayne kids. They were the Ethan kids. And, you know, we, we played them in little league and, uh, in the, it was supposed to, it was supposed to be a seven inning game. It would ended up being a nine inning game because it went to extras. I hit a lead off double and scored the winning run, uh, in the ninth inning. That also happened on the same night that my parents took us out to uh, pizza. Hut. We went to pizza hut afterwards to celebrate. And uh, my parents realized that they were supposed to have seen a report card that they hadn't seen yet from my my middle school. Uh, and it was because I had gotten it and had some grades I wasn't super thrilled about, and I hid it in my locker room. So <laughs> the the glory of the of of hitting the leadoff double that ended up being the winning run in the all-star game in my last year of little league quickly turned to disaster when uh, later that night, my parents realized they had not seen the report card that they were expecting to see from me. So, so the uh, celebratory period was short-lived. It certainly was. It certainly was. Okay. But at least you got your pizza hut in before that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I think it was like right after the salad bar. It was before the pizza actually <laughs> got there. So it was between the salad bar and the pizza that this happened. Wow. Well, let me point out something Paul just did there. God bless you, Paul. Paul used the expression champing at the bit. <laughs> that is, this is a, um, a a bone of contention for me. Peccadillo. Okay. Uh, that, that expression, Paul used the correct expression. It was originally champing at the bit. Through popular misuse, the great majority of the people now say chomping at the bit, which makes sense because, you know, the, a bit is in a, speaking of racehorses, for mm -hmm. what we would name our uh, uh, a racehorse if we were racehorse owners, um, there's a bit in its mouth. That's what holds the reins and, or, you know, the straps that become the reins. And you would think of the horse chomping on that bit that's in the back of its mouth. Um, but I don't know why. I don't really know what the word champing means, but the original phrase is champing at the bit. So thank you. Thank you so much for, for using that. I, you're I you're welcome. It. And champing, I actually looked this up once. Champing actually is sort of a, it's, it's, it's similar to chomping. It's sort of, it's more of a grinding than it is like a sort of up and down like chomping would be. So it, okay. it still involves teeth and it still involves sort of the grinding of teeth, but it's, it's a slightly different phrase. So. Okay. I actually thank you for educating me and your listeners on that. Now, hey, guys and gals listening to this podcast, that's the kind of information that will make you a big hit at parties. Totally. So, yeah, totally. share that. Thing. You'll you'll have a crowd gather around you like you've never experienced before. People love, love esoteric grammar rules, and they love, love being corrected. So 
This it's is... only second to speaking about ligatures. <laughs> <laughs> ligatures. Okay. Next week with Todd Radom is my ligatures episode. Ready for this one. Eggs. Sunny side up, over easy, scrambled or poached. Oh, that's I don't order any of them that way. I order them over medium. So I guess that's crazy. Over I didn't medium. No, there was an over medium. Over you medium know. is how I order my eggs. If if I'm at Uncle Bill's Pancake House in Ocean City, New Jersey, over medium, please. Okay, you, you talk about ordering off the menu, not off the menu, off the board. They've um, never batted an eye, you know. They they. I guess it's a thing, but yeah, I I can tell you, I've never been to breakfast with somebody who has ordered over medium. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but I thought yeah. I was covering the the entire offerings of how to cook eggs. So um, you've you've opened our eyes once again. <laughs> okay, your jersey number of choice and why? Four, it was my jersey number uh, all through Little League. And then it was the jersey number of a player who I liked very much at the time and did not realize until later that he was a despicable person. Uh, but I was a big Lenny Dykstra fan when he was on the Phillies. Well, he was he was... He was one of my favorite players too. Yeah. Like, how can you nails? That's nails. his nickname, and he always nails. had. He was always dirty, and if it wasn't because of the dirt on the the you know from sliding and diving, it was because of the um, the gigantic chaw of um, yeah. of chewing tobacco he had in right. his mouth that would dribble down the front of his jersey. Right. So he played baseball the way uh, the way you would like to see baseball played didn't necessarily live life the way life was supposed to be lived. He was, yeah. he was, he actually spent time in jail after oh, yeah. his career yeah. for, for one indiscretion or another. Yeah. And okay. wrapped his car around a tree in a drunk driving incident, not too far from where I grew up. There you go. So speaking of living life the way it should be lived, do you make your bed in the morning? No. Okay. You don't live life the way it should be. Well, maybe you <laughs> do, but um, okay. Okay. Minor League Baseball recognizes the best promotions of the season each year with something they call the Golden Bobblehead mm. Awards. So with the understanding that that name's already taken, what would you name the award if one was given out to the best new brand identity of the year? This one, uh, this is going to sound maybe sort of trite or maybe maybe too easy, but it's it's both a delicious drink and now a great award, the Brandies. <laughs> okay, I like that. Okay. Tell us something you hate doing. Uh, making my bed. <laughs> okay. That's, who knew this would come up twice <laughs> in three questions? Okay. <laughs> okay. Did you ever dress as a sports figure for Halloween? Yes. I uh, went as John Cruck in 1993. Did you have a, a mullet? I had did a mullet. A I had a, I had a, like a, I stuffed a pillow under a Phillies jersey. <laughs> yeah. So I wore sort of a full Phillies uniform. Uh, and then like just sort of scruffed myself up and, you know, just, yeah, went, went full sort of like dirty John Cruck, basically. Okay. The way we're, we're describing John Cruck, he, he did not look like a prototypical uh, baseball player. And famously one day he and his teammates were walking through the airport and a, a lady stopped them and uh, stopped him and said something, you know, realized that these were the Philadelphia Phillies or, or a baseball team. And she looked at him and she said to him, you don't, you don't look like an athlete. And she said, lady, we're not athletes. We're baseball players. <laughs> he also wore a t-shirt on David Letterman's show once after he had uh, a successful operation for testicular cancer. 
He wore a t-shirt that said, if you don't like how I play, I'll take my ball and go home. <laughs> so he's certainly worthy of, of you choosing him as your, your, your costume for Halloween. Okay. <laughs> what is a baseball unwritten rule you think is ridiculous? Okay. Or don't bunt during a no hitter. Uh, I get on base, break up the no hitter. Okay. Um, when I had, when I joined Paul and his baseball palooza friends for a game here in, in Louisville, Kentucky, one of his, one of the friends, and you might remember which one it was. So give a shout out to him if you recall who it was, was wearing a t-shirt referring to the Oxford comma. Do you remember who that friend was? Yes, my friend, Jeremy. Yes. Okay. Jeremy, this is, this one's for you. What the Oxford comma is, for those of you who are not otherwise familiar with it, as I learned in school, if you had, for instance, three things in a sentence, um, talking about what I love about baseball, I love the food, comma, the excitement, and the ice cream, okay? I learned there's not a comma before the, the, the and. An Oxford comma is a comma that's put in before the end. Yeah. The I'm sorry, the end. So Paul, Oxford comma, yes or no? Yes, definitely. Serial yeah. comma, Oxford comma, call it what you like. It adds, it adds clarity. I'm a great believer in in the clarity. This is the Chicago manual, not the the Associated Press manual. I think the Chicago manual style uh, is about clarity of language. I think the Associated Press style is about saving ink. Okay. And Paul in addition to his daytime job as a professional writer. So if Paul says Oxford comma, yes. And if he says champing at the bit, listen to Paul. He knows of right. what he speaks. Also one space after a period, not two. Well, that comes from typewriters. Now that we no longer use typewriters, yes, no longer one space. But for some reason, you put two spaces when typing with a with a um, analog typewriter, if that's yeah. what it's called. The monospacing was... For you know this. Okay. Your favorite character from the Sandlot. Dan, this is, um, I'm going to whisper this because I don't know, like if people are listening to this in such a way that they're being heard, you know, elsewhere. I think the Sandlot is overrated and I've only seen it once. I, I couldn't, with, with the exception of knowing that there was a You're Killing Me Smalls quote, I couldn't name a character except for, I guess, the dog in the Sandlot. Okay. Uh, you know what? At some point, Maybe when we do um, part two or, or the return to the Turn the Tables podcast, uh, we'll delve deeper into that. But this is the lightning round. So for now, we move on to this. Other than Sunday helmets, what is something very important to you that is not necessarily important to most others? The Oxford comma is uh, <laughs> one space after a period rather than two. Something that is very important to me, fonts. Uh, I, you know, I think, and this might be just a thing that, uh, you know, maybe we as designers appreciate in ways that others don't, but like anyone using comic sans in any professional situation, the fact that the movie avatar had a $4 billion budget and they basically used papyrus for their logo. Uh, I, this is the, the, the choice of fonts, the use of, you know, default fonts in professional situations. Uh, is something that annoys me in a way that probably doesn't other people. Well, it it does other people, probably not most others. And that's how I asked the question that isn't important to most others. But it is of 
of paramount importance to me. And in, in addition to papyrus and comic sans, let me add brush script. Don't brush script. Don't, okay, just I just don't. saw brush script somewhere. I was just looking at something that had brush okay. script on it. And we'll continue seeing it and we yeah. should it. It's, yeah. it's a light on the on on typesetting um type choice, the type choice landscape. Yeah. Paul, who is a player not in the baseball hall of fame who you think should be? Pete Rose. Shoeless Joe and Barry Bonds uh, put up, it's a museum. It's supposed to be telling the story. I get that. It's also an honor to be in there, but it's, it's ridiculous to me that the hall of fame does not have those players in them. Put those players in, tell their story, you know, tell the story of the gambling and the steroids and the cheating and make it part of the fact that they're in the hall of fame. But the fact that the home run King, the hit King, uh, you know, obviously Shoeless Joe was a was an important figure in that era. Like they should all be on the uh, they should all be in the Hall of Fame, and we should just tell the story. Okay, that's another thing that we can add to the topics for the um, the follow up. Uh, <laughs> okay, what is something people would be surprised to know about you? One time, I juggled on a street corner in France with a hat in front of me long enough to earn enough money to go parasailing. <laughs> that is very specific and very wonderful. I did not expect an answer as good as that. So uh, <laughs> well, we should end there, but you know what? I've got three more questions. Let's, keep Let's do it. Let's do it. If you can go back in time and change any moment in baseball history, Joe Carter, what would it? Okay. There you Joe go. Carter. Uh, I know what you're referring to. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners do. For those who might not, uh, tell tell us what you're talking about. This was the moment in Game Six of the World Series, in a in a, in a World Series that involved a game that the Phillies lost 15 to 14 after having a 14 to eight lead at one point. Um, game Six of the series and in fact the entire world series ended on a walk-off home run by joe carter uh giving the toronto blue jays their second consecutive world series and giving the phillies and that john crook darren dalton lenny dykstra mickey morandini mitch williams team a uh, a heartbreaking world series loss listeners if you have not already picked up on this uh paul's a pretty big phillies fan so, okay. Okay, follow me on this one. Okay. If you were chosen to give a commencement speech, oh. what is something you would tell the graduates about their lives moving forward, something that you may have learned later that you wish someone would have told you when you were at that stage of your life that those students are, are currently at? I've been living my life according to an, an ethos uh, the, the last you know year or so that was a, a purposeful change and has proven to be uh, something that has, has worked well for me, which is to say yes, to just say yes, even if sometimes you feel like saying no. And so this is like a little bit more of a serious answer. Say yes, say yes to opportunities to do things, say yes to opportunities to spend time with people, travel, even if you, know, if, if you don't think maybe necessarily you have the time for it, Go out, even if you think you're a little too tired to to go out to, to anything that is not going to violate your your moral code or you know your 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 ethics or your you know sort of standards that you have about how you live your life. 
find find reasons to say yes to things instead of finding reasons to say no to things. Well, we have heard many times people say those are valuable words to live by. You put it more succinctly and you, Paul, that is a valuable word to live by. So, and that brings us to our final question. Where does the time go? I I was recently quoted and I had some travel woes uh, because of the weather uh, that that rolled through all of the United States, basically. And uh, I remember I was uh, the the New York Times uh, saw that I was that I was tweeting about it, and one of their reporters reached out and said, "Hey, can we just call you for a quick interview?" So they interviewed me for a couple of minutes, and then they posted the story. And uh, I remember, you know, the New York Times in its style, they they refer to people as Mister and their last name or Ms. and their last name. And so I was Mister Caputo, comma forty nine, and I just looked at it and I thought that can't be possible. <laughs> I mean, I've been there for all of my birthdays, but I still was just like 49 of them. Really? Like, that's not possible. And so, you know, the answer is, uh, you know, hopefully it goes to, uh, to, to great memories and, you know, fun experiences that you have in your lifetime. And, uh, you know, that you look back on that time and think, oh, I did some cool stuff. And I saw some great places and learned some great things and met some great people. I, you know what? I like what you just said there. You, in, in short, you, you, what you're saying is where the, the time goes, it goes, it becomes our memories. So um, it, the time goes away, you, you, it disappears, but it becomes something else and hopefully something positive, which is our memories. So that brings us to the end of this podcast. And Paul, I'm handing the reins back to you. Okay. Well, thanks everyone. Thank you, Dan, for this, this amazing idea. This, this was so much fun to, to get the tables turned on me. And now I know how my guests feel when I interview them and spring a question on them that they're not expecting. And so this has been a lot of fun. I look forward to a, a 2023 full of new brands, new ballparks, more ice cream, and, uh, and, and more appearances by both Ranger Amy, who's with me here, and lots of fun, cool animal logos. Lots of fun, cool animal logos, including many designed by Dan Simon himself. Dan, thank you so much. Happy New Year. Same to you. And I can tell you there's a new animal coming in 2024 that we're going to have a great podcast about. So um, it's due to production lead times. These things are done more than a year in advance. But uh, 10 months from now, you, I've got a doozy for you. Amazing. Yes. <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs>